Strip mall. Dance. It was a beautiful old strip mall. I had seen my husband before at a big rally at the highway on ramp for all the men who had enlisted. He was going to war. Four years later, we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Russell S. Bonds, author of Stealing the General, the Great Locomotive Chase, and the First Medal of Honor. We will get back to that in just a second. I cannot refrain from commenting on the very interesting public service announcement that was shared in which we learned that it doesn't matter where in America you live, we're all equally targets. Um, Russ, I will trade Greenville's chances uh, with Atlanta's chances of being the target of uh, an alien attack. Uh, (laughs) I take it back. I won't. I'll keep my chances here. I think in Greenville we're pretty darn safe. I I may come up there and visit you in Greenville. Yeah, we're, and it's not Greenville, South Carolina. That's a big place. This is right. a little one. We're we're plenty safe here. Um, but if we all want to be equally scared, we can certainly certainly arrange that. Um, actually, to tie that in with our subject today, uh, a question I, I'd like to bring up later is uh, about the definition of the Andrews Raiders and the use of words like spy or a word that doesn't appear in your book, terrorist. Uh, but let's save that for a little bit. You can cogitate on that as we go. Okay. Um, when the the raiders are picked, uh, we've got these two dozen fellows, volunteers, uh, a couple civilians among them, led by uh, this, this civilian uh, spy. How do they? How does the plan work? How do they? How do you steal a train? Well, they uh, they change into civilian clothes and and travel first west to Chattanooga and then board trains south to. Uh, my hometown of Marietta, Georgia, uh, where they spend the night in, in a couple of local local hotels. Uh, and along the way, there are some 
some uh, fairly comical episodes uh, that happen as suspicion falls on some of them. Uh, one had one soldier, for example, had had failed to find a suitable replacement for his blue uniform pants, and so was uh, was stopped by some Confederate pickets and and subjected to some questioning. Uh, made it past, and then later uh, switched into some yellow striped civilian britches, which I note in the book is probably the only time when in history when a spy changed into the yellow striped britches in order to be less conspicuous. Um, but in any event, they arrive in, in Marietta, uh, spend the night, board the morning train in civilian clothes. Um, and then at the breakfast stop uh, in Big Shanty, today known as Kennesaw, Georgia, uh, just as Andrew's plan, the crew and the passengers all get off to eat breakfast. It's an 11-hour train trip from Atlanta to Chattanooga, and you had one chance to eat, and that was there at Big Shanty. So everyone gets off the train. The uh, raiders walk up and crawl in the boxcars. Andrews and his engineer and fireman walk up to the uh, to the engine general, and um, Andrews gives a wave to the Confederate sentry standing nearby, and off they go without a shot being fired. Well, that is really amazing. Sometimes the boldest plan is the the easiest. Uh, just just walk up and take it. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely shocking. And you mentioned the word terrorist. Um, you know, a, a, another word that I don't don't use in the book is the word hijacking, uh, because there was no such word uh, at the time. I mean, this was an era when when folks you know tied their horses up outside uh, and and didn't worry about them. So, um, you know, no one thought about leaving a train unattended or even even you know considered it possible that someone might just climb aboard and take off. And the the technology of operating a train was such that uh, there were there were enough people in Andrew's party who knew what to do. Uh, yeah, Andrews had specifically um, uh, requested and recruited um, some engineer, um, some railroad engineers and firemen and machinists, uh, people with with some experience. He did have a number of farmers and school teachers, et cetera, uh, but he specifically. Uh, requested and, and interviewed um, to be sure that they were competent, uh, a couple of engineers to take along with him. So they get on the train, they get it going, uh, they, they start heading north. And one thing I thought was interesting was that they did not immediately just pour on the, the fuel and take off at breakneck speed, but they tried to uh, just sort of mosey along as if they were a regular train at first. Yeah, Andrews wanted to use deception and just stick to the schedule, uh, which called for a 16-mile-an-hour speed. Um, so they, they crept along. They did stop and tear up uh, a little bit of track and cut telegraph wires uh, early on, but um, they were sort of planning to stick to the schedule and, and pass regular traffic uh, on schedule on this single-line road and then leave their destruction for farther up the road uh, once they had crossed uh, uh, the Etowah and Ustanala rivers in, into the North Georgia mountains. So they they get off to a good start, and from from here on, the number of things that go wrong for them, or, or just coincidences, or bad breaks, whatever you call it, uh, is just staggering. You just don't want to be uh, uh, standing in a lightning storm with these guys. It was not a lucky day for Mr. Andrews, that's for sure. No, uh, starting with the the guy whose train was stolen, a Fuller, I think it, it was. Yeah, they they took this train from the wrong from the wrong guy. That's for sure. Uh, William Fuller was the train's conductor, 
which today may may uh, make us think of a ticket taker, but a conductor in those days was the he was like the, sh- the captain of the ship. Um, he was responsible for the the train, the cargo, and the passengers, and took that responsibility very seriously. So when he saw his train rolling uh, rolling off down the road, um, stolen by uh, by someone he you know he, he didn't know initially, he thought it might be des- deserters from a nearby Confederate camp. But uh, he started out after the train on foot, to the amazement of everyone standing nearby, and he ran a couple of miles until he came to a track crew. Uh, then got aboard a, a hand car or, or push car, and then pushed his way up to the Etowah River Bridge, where uh, he was able to get aboard a switch engine called the Yona, and from then on it was a locomotive chase. So uh, you'd think at some point uh, the Raiders could have just burnt a bridge behind them or, or you know, lifted a piece of track and taken it with them or done something to uh, prevent this. Why didn't they do that? Well, they, one of the engineers, in fact, wanted to burn the Etowah Bridge, but there were a number of men standing around there um, and at a railroad siding, and Andrews, again, wanted to rely on deception. Um, farther along, they did pull up a, a piece of track here or there, um, but uh, the pursuers were able to switch trains. In fact, they switched, tra- switched trains twice, uh, once to the William R. Smith at Kingston and then on to the uh, equally matched locomotive Texas, a sort of a twin of the general at Adairsville, um, and then it was just uh, uh, neck and neck, uh, no more 16-mile-an-hour speeds from there on out. The uh, So then they get going. Uh, now they're, they're racing. They've got two uh, trains. The, the Texas is going backwards, as I recall, from the movie uh, posters and that, that's correct. It, it was the Texas was pulling a southbound freight train, and there was no turntable or other means to to turn it around. So I I, I tell people, um, and, and at this stage, Andrews no longer said stick to the schedule. He told his engineer, "Let's see how fast this thing can go." So um, you know, through, through this stretch of the chase, you're talking about a locomotive, one of them running backwards, but a fifty thousand pound locomotive um, on a twisting railroad in the rain. Uh, going between 60 and 70 miles an hour, um, which was absolutely remarkable and, and um, you know, sort of a death-defying feat uh, in those days. In uh, You said one of the legends of the story is that, that, uh, about the, the train jumping over a gap in the rails. The, the Texas leaps over the, 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 one of the rails that the, the, the Raiders removed. But you say that didn't happen. That's right. It's something you would... See, perhaps in an Indiana Jones movie, but uh, uh, did did not happen. And in fact, the railroad men involved later, you know, said that would be clearly impossible. Uh, there was a misunderstanding on one of the Raiders' parts as to exactly where it was that they had pulled up a couple of rails, and so he he thought that they had pulled one up after. Uh, the pursuers had gotten to Texas, and so the only explanation he could think of is that the, the Texas had been going so fast that it had actually jumped uh, over the gap, uh, which which did not occur. Um, and, and you know, some of these uh, legends were also perpetuated by the movies in an effort to to make things more thrilling. So, in the Disney movie, you have uh, the Raiders actually succeeding in in getting a bridge set afire, and uh, Fuller in pursuit, uh, uh, pushing a a burning boxcar clear of the bridge uh, uh, in the flames to, to sort of continue the pursuit, and that didn't occur either. So 
no burning box car, no no flying locomotive, but still plenty of drama as the locomotive uh, chase continues. Uh, but it ends so, somewhat anticlimactically. The, the the general just runs out of fuel. That's right. It's the, I say that the chase literally ran out of steam. Um, you know, the the tender on a locomotive would carry a cord and a half of wood and 1,700 gallons of water, and that would take the engine only about 33 miles. So you had to refuel very frequently, and the ultimate failure for Andrews is that he didn't have time with these pursuers behind him to stop and refill, refuel his tender, or refill his tender. Um, so they just they simply ran out of steam uh, once they hit a long upgrade near the town of Ringgold, Georgia. Um, another foreshadowing, by the way, uh, all these railroad points um, will be familiar to students of the Atlanta campaign um, when two years later Sherman would come down the same railroad the other direction. So a lot of the names you hear in the locomotive chase, Resaca and Dalton and Tunnel Hill and Cassville, um, will become familiar names again um, when Sherman comes to town. Uh, that's right. They, uh, uh, the, the Atlanta campaign goes through those stops or around them uh, often when Sherman outflanks Johnston. But, right. Uh, so when when the chase ends, when the general finally just comes to a halt, uh, the, the, the raiders bail out and, and, and take to the woods. That doesn't seem like a very promising thing to do, um, given how far they are from Union lines. Did any of them make it back? No, they didn't. All were rounded up within uh, a week or ten days and thrown in a um, in a jail, uh, more like a dungeon actually, in Chattanooga, um, with a uh, with a, a just a vicious uh, jailer presiding. One of the uh, really enjoyable characters for me to write about was the jailer in Chattanooga, an old man named Swims, uh, who tormented the the raiders as they were kept in this dungeon prison awaiting their. Tor- awaiting their uh, court-martial. Um, so they were all quickly um, uh, quickly captured, and Andrews was the first to stand trial for uh, uh, for treason or, or for, for spying. Well, let's talk a little bit about the legal aspects of this. Now, there, first of all, did he actually have a, a trial, or was it just a, a drumhead court-martial? He, he did have a trial and actually secured very uh, very competent um, defense counsel, a former congressman in Chattanooga named Reese Brabson. Um, the the court martial itself, um, you know, had all the uh, at least the appearance of, of a court martial until you actually got in there and started taking testimony and watching the court members, um, who um, uh, some witnesses recalled would be sitting and uh, drinking and reading novels during the testimony. Um, so I've, I've noted in my talks that if you're on trial for your life and you look and the, the trier of fact is drinking and reading novels, uh, then you, you know you're in trouble. So uh, can't be a good sign. It cannot be a good sign. So uh, Andrews was uh, very quickly found guilty, and then seven more of the raiders were, were tried soon thereafter, um, actually taken up to Knoxville because of a shortage of Confederate officers to sit, sit on a court-martial in Chattanooga. Um, and those seven were, were found guilty as well. Now, were they? What were they guilty of? Or, or and, and were they in fact guilty of it? What What does the law? What law were they tried under? I guess a lot of legal questions come to mind here. Yeah, you know, interestingly, they were not uh, tried at all for the theft of the train. In fact, if you read, uh, if you read the uh, the indictment or the um, and the ultimate sentence, 
um, they're not found guilty of, you'd be hard-pressed to know exactly what happened, that they'd stolen a train and gone behind enemy lines. Um, the reason being that the Confederates were concerned that all that sound, sounded like fairly legitimate military activity, um, mm-hmm. sort of a behind-the-lines raid. So instead, their, their actual charges were for, quote-unquote, lurking about the camps, um, which is more of a spying charge. It made it sound like they were just sort of sneaking around the camps and stealing information, um, which is a pretty far cry from what actually happened. But in any event, that, uh, that sounded uh, much more like uh, treasonous behavior for which uh, the penalty of hanging would be appropriate. Uh, so that's that's what they were that's what they were tried for. And in fact, the uh, the Raiders' defense was, uh, you know, we were soldiers uh, on a legitimate military mission, undercut somewhat by the fact, of course, that they were led by a civilian spy and they were all wearing civilian clothes. But um, but that was their defense, and it and it failed miserably. Well, you know, I, I wonder about that though. The the line between military and civilian. Uh, as as we see in, in in trying to pacify some areas of the world today, is, is often a very thin and indistinguishable one. Uh, or someone could be a soldier at night and a civilian in the day, to all appearances. And certainly, there were Confederate soldiers uh, who were awfully ragged in their dress, and uh, would be hard hard put to claim they were in uniform, right? Uh, even if they were serving in in regular units of of the Confederate Army. So, excellent points, and 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 points that were made, especially the point about Confederates in civilian clothes, uh, by the Raiders Defense Council, but the uh, the Confederate officer who was acting as the prosecutor uh, responded by saying, um, they were down here where they shouldn't have been, and I'll hang every one of them if I can. So they were, uh, the uh, Confederate uh, command was unimpressed with distinctions between uh, military and civilian in this particular context. Oh, Russ, what's your opinion of this? Uh, were they actually violating laws of war? Uh, I mean, this this predates the Geneva Convention, right? In terms of written codes of war, but there are unwritten codes uh, under which the two sides operated. There were things that you did not do in wartime. Uh, you know, to murder civilians is clearly not part of of, of war in the 1860s. Uh, legitimate part of war. Was this legitimate or not? I think there's an excellent argument that uh, that um, you know these uh, were Union soldiers behind enemy lines on a raid that had a very uh, distinct military purpose. Um, you know the, the counter arguments are, are, again are around the fact that they were disguised in civilian clothes and that sort of thing, and and the fact that their their leader was uh, was known to be a spy and a smuggler. Um, but I, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty strong argument that uh, there was a legitimate purpose here. Um, certainly, the, the Southern public regarded this as a, uh, the, regarded the foiling of, of the Andrews raid as a very significant accomplishment for the South, uh, protecting the railroads. And um, some, some of the newspapers thought it was an even, even bigger deal than the uh, victory at Manassas, um, which, is, which is really you know, surprising when you look back. Uh, comparing the two events. It, it is. Uh, the contemporary perspective is often way off by, by our judgment. We're going to take another break now. We'll come back and find out what happened, uh, what was the fate of the Raiders, uh, when we come back with Russ Bonds on Civil War Talk Radio.